0: Welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a rather spooky podcast, or for this show at least. As it's that time of the year, Phil and I have decided to root back into our hazy memories of the early 80s and pull out an old favourite, at least as far as memory serves, from our early teens. Back when Pops and my uncles were throwing piles of 60s and 70s pulp paperbacks my way, there were just a handful of non sci fi and fantasy books making their way into the mix, and some were of the horror or at least Supernatural variety. There was the Panther edition of Tales of the Supernatural Volume 2 by Arthur Makin, or the two or ten-year-old, the baffling but disturbingly titled The Doll Who Ate His Mother by Ramsey Campbell. There was the Sphere edition of The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson, and the equally marvellously covered The Devils of D-Day by Graham Masterton and the paintings that graced the covers of the last two would pop up elsewhere over the years, including on heavy metal record and magazine covers. There was one author, though, that became synonymous with the forbidden fruit feel of horror, and at my school in Hull, on what we called wet breaks, i.e. when it was pissing down so we couldn't go out to play outside, older kids would oversee classes for 15 minutes, or longer at lunchtimes, to cover the teacher's fag breaks, and they'd have the feet upon the teacher's desk. And on a couple of occasions I remember an older boy had a copy of the NEL edition of The Rats by James Herbert. I was familiar with the author's name as my uncle Phil was reading a copy of Herbert's second book, The Fog That Would Come My Way Sometime Afterwards. At school, once the teachers caught wind of the fact that copies of The Rats were doing the rounds of the older kids, who were probably around 11 years old at that time, they were banned by the headmistress and quickly went underground James Herbert wrote The Rats in the early 70s and it was published in 1974, quickly becoming a runaway hit and selling out in three weeks. For the most part it was trashed critically, but Ramsey Campbell said of Herbert, The Rats announces at once that he won't be confined by the conventions of English macabre fiction. And he said that the book can discuss its underlying themes so directly without becoming pretentious. It's one of Herbert's strengths. The success of The Rats as well as prompting three sequels by Herbert, also arguably kicked off a massive craze within publishing houses for more Killer Critters books, leading to knockoffs like Slugs by Sean Hudson and the brilliantly titled Night of the Crabs by Guy and Smith, which I've still never read but really need to. And if you're interested, check out Lord Samper's library for more details on Smith's crab universe. The third novel in the rats' sequence, Domain, combined the vicious menace with one of my overriding obsessions as a school kid, Nuclear Holocaust, being published the same year as Thread Zed on the BBC. I was so obsessed I even wrote a missing chapter for my English class. In the book the protagonists find their way into a government bunker, but the rats have been there already, so I filled in the blanks and described Thatcher and the Tory cabinet getting eaten. It was my first effort at fan fiction, I suppose. Herbert would go on to write a further 22 novels before his death at the tender age of 69, and would become perhaps a little more turned down as he matured. His books were also very widely adapted over the years, mostly his less lascivious and overtly violent books such as The Survivor, Fluke and Haunted, but to my generation I think he's still best known for that early rash of at the time shocking and in your face horror. Of course there's always an argument as to whether books like this are really true horror, but all I can say is that The Rats is overtly horrific for sure, in more ways than one, so let's take a deep dive into Stepney of 1974 and see what's occurring. Philly's is waiting for me in Derry and Tom's, thankfully high above the terrified London streets, to drink some spooky cocktails and have a natter about The Rats. Well, here we are. It's Halloween. We're in Derry and Tom's Roof Garden, high above the streets of London, and we've got a spooky cocktail to kick us off. What have we got, baby? Uh,
1: a spooky old-fashioned?
0: it's very spooky old-fashioned. What's <coughs> making it so spooky? I
1: made it in the dark.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's actually just a regular old-fashioned. I made a spooky old-fashioned last night using grenadine. It was a little bit too sweet. Um, and besides, I've just had my own personal Halloween by eating some of those uh, Carolina Reaper peanuts that you got me. And I only had two. And dear (laughs) listeners, I had to go and have a Cornetto to settle my gob down because it was absolutely outrageous. But anyway, enough of that. We're here to talk about spooky Halloween horror. And we've chosen The Rats by James Herbert. So, Phil, The Rats by James Herbert. Had you ever read it before?
1: I had as a child. It was one of the first books I remember reading... Away from obviously the school curriculum, and I remembered really enjoying it at the time. Yeah, interesting to go back to.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's uh, I think we'll talk about some of those features, but um, <laughs> reading it in the early 80s, as I did when I think I was about 10 or 11 years old, or maybe 12 or something like that, mm. and being kind of suckered into it because it is a fast paced book and it it rattles along at a heck of a pace. Yeah, reading it 40 odd years later, no sorry, 35 maybe years later. Slightly different experience.
1: Absolutely. And also because it's quite short, it explains why it was easy to finish it as a child as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. So. Um, of course it was James Herbert's first book, so we've got to, I suppose we've got to cut him some slack. But you know what, let's just get into it. Yeah. So we kick off with a prologue, and I'll just read a little bit of the prologue. The old house had been empty for more than a year. It stood, detached and faded, next to a disused canal, away from the road, screened by foliage gone wild. No one went there, nobody showed much interest anymore. A few windows had been shattered by the neighbourhood kids, but even they lost interest when nothing more than silence responded to the crash of broken glass. In fact, the only interest that had ever been shown by others was on the day they took the old woman away. They knew she'd been living alone since her husband had died, never went out and was only rarely seen peering from behind lace curtains. She never parted the curtains, just gazed through them so only a hazy spectral form could be seen by anyone interested enough to look. Her groceries were delivered every week and left on the back step. Powdered milk was included amongst them. The local grocer said the old woman's bank paid her bills regularly every three months with never any queries as to the contents of his delivery. Which suited him. He'd been given a list at the beginning for a regular order, but if he forgot to include a pound or two of butter, or a pound of sugar now and again, no one noticed, no one complained. Still, he was curious. He used to see her occasionally when her husband was alive, but even then she didn't have much to say. There were a couple of other queer old birds, and her old man, never going out, never having company, but well off because they'd been abroad for years, and since their return the husband never seemed to work. Then the old boy had died. The grocer wasn't sure of what, but it had been a recurrence of some tropical disease he'd caught whilst abroad. The old woman was never seen after that, but the grocer had heard her. Nothing much, just the scraping of chairs or a door closing. He'd once heard a shouting at someone, but never discovered who. People had begun to wonder about her. Some heard wailing coming from the house one night, after another. Finally, complete silence for over a month. It was only when the grocer found his previous week's delivery still on the doorstep that he reluctantly reported the matter to the police. Reluctantly, because he feared the worst and hated to see a nice little regular order come to an end. Anyway, it turned out she wasn't dead. A policeman was sent to investigate and then an ambulance arrived and took her away. She wasn't dead, just a lunatic. As far as the grocer was concerned, she might just as well have passed on because that was the end of his little number. It had been too good to last. So the house was empty. Nobody came, nobody went, nobody really bothered. In a year, it was barely visible from the road. The undergrowth was tall, the bushes thick, and the trees hid the upper story. Eventually, people were hardly aware it existed. So that's quite a tidy little prologue that sets up a little bit of mystery, but also sets up one of James Herbert's favourite things, which is people just being (laughs) (laughs) assholes. Yeah, he's a very uncaring grosser, isn't groceries. Yeah, it? yeah. Uh, I I would just love that bit about the, the grocer. So, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so but uh, people being kind of generally a little bit mean is a, a regular feature of this book. Let's get into chapter one then, and here we really go straight into one of James Herbert's key MOs that applies to pretty much all of his early horror work, which is kind of a slice slice of life vignette. About an individual that introduces somebody gives you a little bit of detail about the character, a bit of characterisation and then they wrap up the character in a handful of pages and generally something awful happens so vignette one we've got Henry a businessman that temporarily finds love with a younger colleague that he's training and on a trip to Bradford (laughs) of all places, Henry entertains a client in a strip club along with his young protégé who he gets the hots for and plies with drink and it all goes a little bit weird from there, because in, in the first instance, you could think, right, okay, this is a it's a, a little bit of information, building a character about a guy who's a middle-aged businessman, he's not very happy with his life, for reasons that we'll find out shortly. Um, but let's uh, let's take a quick look. So, they've been in a strip club with this client, and he's been feeding Francis, his young protégé, booze, and plying him with scotch.
1: Since early afternoon.
0: Yeah. And um, and there's a little bit here, actually, whether in the strip club it says, the boy was a bit green, of course, but they'd shown him how real men acted when they were confronted by naked thighs and fleshy tits. And um, the word tits don't come up very often in the book, but the word thighs comes up incredibly frequently. It does, actually. He's got a bit of an obsession with thighs. Yeah. But it says, when they got back to the hotel, the hotel Guilfoyle had chosen for special reasons. The boy was sick. He wasn't used to drink, but Guilfoyle had plied him with whisky all afternoon. Now he began to have regrets. Perhaps he'd overdone it. Francis had been sick in the cab on the way back from the club, and then again in their room in the sink. Gilfoil had ordered black coffee and poured three cups into the half-conscious boy. There was a mess on the boy's coat and shirt, so Guilfoyle tenderly took them off and scrubbed the worst spots in hot water. Then Francis began to cry. He was sitting on his bed, head in his hands, his pale shoulders shuddering convulsively. A lock of fair hair fell over his long, thin fingers. Guilfoyle sat next to him and put his arm over the boy's shoulder. The boy's head leaned into Guilfoyle's chest and then he was cradling him in his arms. They stayed like that for a long time, the older man rocking the younger one back and forth like a five-year-old until the sobbing faded into an occasional whimper. Guilfoyle slowly undressed Francis and put him into the bed, he gazed at him for a while, then he undressed himself and got in beside the boy and closed his eyes. Guilfoyle would never forget that night. They'd made love and the boy had surprised him. He wasn't the innocent he had seemed. Nevertheless, Guilfoyle had fallen in love. He knew the dangers. He'd heard the stories of middle-aged men and young boys, knew their vulnerability. But he was happy. For the first time, after making love to another man, he felt clean. Purged was the feeling of guilt. Gone was the feeling of self contempt and disgust. He felt free and alive, more alive than he'd ever been. Okay.
1: But when he's talking about, you know, this young lad was more more aware of what he was doing than he first thought, he took advantage. Yeah,
0: we need to unpack this a little bit. We don't we? Um When you have a think about this, so this is written in nineteen probably nineteen seventy three, published in nineteen seventy four. Is this a weird combination of James Herbert trying to write something quite sensitive and tender about a middle aged, repressed gay man who finally finds love with a younger man but didn't really realise how kind of creepy it would seem 40 odd years later that effectively is just date raped this boy? <laughs> Yeah. Um, by plying him with alcohol,
1: knowingly plied him with alcohol all afternoon, yeah. knowing what his intention was, because yeah. he'd said he had feelings for him before yeah. they went away on this trip.
0: Yeah, are, are we to understand that is is it something to do with James Herbert's attitude, or is he describing? Can we read into it that he's describing a middle-aged man who effectively gets a young boy who he has some responsibility for in a work situation drunk, shags him when he's vulnerable because he's crying and all his business, mm. and then justifies it to himself by his, like, his own internal coming out, and it's really, really hard to unpick where James Herbert is coming from with this.
1: And he didn't say, okay, he undressed him, and then he undressed himself. He didn't then say who made the first move. Yeah. So you could argue it could have come from either side, but yeah. The way it's written, it feels like it's all come from uh, Henry's.
0: Yeah, the, the way it's written, it's like in, in a modern take on it is Henry has basically been a sexual predator, and used alcohol to make this kid vulnerable and then sleep with him. Now, wh- whether that would have read like that in nineteen seventy four or nineteen eighty four, I'm not entirely sure. Because the benefit of hindsight, you know, you just don't know. We don't have the benefit of hindsight with that. But long story short. Henry Guilford leaves his job, moved to London, turns into a drunk doing odd jobs, then one night staggers into a condemned slum house to sleep it off and gets eaten by rats. <laughs> and this is, this is how James Herbert vignettes tend to go. But there's that sense, it's like, is he setting this guy up to be eaten by rats because, you know, is this some kind of weird punishment? Um, is it like a karma thing? It's really, really hard to tell with these kind of things. Um, but we...
1: But interestingly, if you go back to when it all started to fall apart, obviously his workmates were talking about him quite crudely Hmm. and he'd found it on a toilet door and sat there crying. And then Francis had left and he went to the mum's house and mum had a right go at him because Francis was so very young. Yeah. (laughs) Which left me with how old is Francis? Yeah, she
0: threatens to call the police, doesn't she? Yeah. Um, and then everything falls apart at work. Francis leaves the job and he never sees him again. Everybody at work knows now that he's gay and ostracise him.
1: So he starts drinking and then things start to fall through with his business deals, yeah. so then he gets overlooked for promotion. Yeah, and, and he ends up drunk slang. in a yeah. slum
0: house, being torn apart by rats. <laughs> and-
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, gra- a natural progression from, from being a drunk... Yeah. Businessman.
0: <laughs> and towards the end of that chapter, he's, he's getting eaten by rats, and it says, Shivers ran along his spine to his shocked brain. The dim shadows seemed to float before him. Then a redness ran across his vision. It was the redness of unbelievable pain. He couldn't see anymore. The rats had already eaten his eyes.
1: <laughs> I That's a fantastic line. I loved that.
0: <laughs> you know what I, well, I thought when I read that? I thought Garth Marenghi because Garth Marenghi's Dark Place the Garth Berengue character is basically a, a, a piss take of James Herbert the leather coat and um, there's, a, there's a a, a bit on, on some of the extras I think from um, or it might actually be in Garth Dark Place where you get him uh, reading extracts from his book because it cuts away to interviews doesn't it and he's saying something about one of his books and he's reading it out and he goes and there was blood, blood, blood blood and some snot. <laughs> oh, I'm to read you this. I can't help but read it in Gaff Merengue style. It was the redness of unbelievable pain. He couldn't see anymore. The rats had already eaten his eyes. When it, when
1: but if you go back further and he talks about tits, he also <laughs> talks about the strippers, those big-breasted, deformed women. And I'm like, sorry. <laughs> oh,
0: Fantastic. And that says, uh, then he, he felt nothing, just a spreading sweetness over his body. He died with no thoughts on his mind, not even of his beloved, almost forgotten Francis. Just sweetness, not even pain. He was beyond that. So it's like, oh, well, actually, the rats have really kind of solved his midlife crisis, haven't they? <laughs> Quite nicely. <laughs> so that's the first of those vignettes, and we'll, we'll get a few more. But now, chapter two, we meet the hero, <laughs> Harris, teacher... Lover, socially conscious pervert. Yeah, it's got everything.
1: Yeah, I put in my head, Harris, the hero, yeah. question mark. <laughs> <part.
0: laughs> I put the hero in vert commas. So so we meet Harris. Now, Harris teaches in an inner city school with lots of impoverished kids. And he has a particular affinity for a cheeky lad called Keo. And
1: He's an art teacher. Mm. So he talks about the creativity, doesn't he? And yeah. Skill.
0: Yeah. But he's he's, he's got this thing where he's he's kind of a a little bit socially conscious and socially aware, isn't he? And he's teaching in this inner-city school and he says, Harris wondered if it was worth it. He had his choice of schools to teach him, but he wanted to help his own kind. No, he wasn't that noble. This was his home ground. He was in his element here. Besides, they paid more for teachers in underprivileged areas. Still, Barney showed promise. Maybe if he talked to the boy's parents, they'd let him go on to art school. His thoughts were interrupted as he heard the school bell. Going through the gates, he heard the clatter of running footsteps behind him. Two giggling girls, both in short skirts, both with bouncing breasts, both about 14 years old, flounced past. Anyway, the crumpet's good. Harris smiled to himself.
1: I read it. I read it. And I was like, what? oh my God. We're supposed to like this man as the hero. Oh,
0: Incredible. Absolutely incredible. How did he get away with it? <laughs> it's product of its time, I guess.
1: 14 year old girls. Yeah, yeah. Oh.
0: What a champion bloke. Oh, what a hero. Oh. So, anyway, young Barney Keogh he reports that he got bitten on the hand by a big rat by the canal. Oh, oh my word. Poor, poor, poor lad. We're on to chapter three, our second vignette. And we meet sweet, chuckling baby Karen and the family dog Shane.
1: I have to say, it's a good vignette.
0: It's, it's very sweet, the way it's described, the relationship between like the 13 or 14-month-built old baby and the dog and yeah. and all that business, and we find out a little bit about our mum and dad and their plans to move somewhere a bit nicer. And Karen's mum, Paula, who was a housewife, and her dad, a mechanic, that they could buy a new house in a nicer part of London. That really dates the book. Um, but anyway, rats come out the cellar and eat Karen and Shane... <laughs>
1: That poor puppy, that poor puppy. And then he was trying to save the baby, but yeah, yeah that didn't work out. Yeah,
0: so it's a brave Shane. And actually, it's it's pretty effectively written, yeah, right, that passage. And the panic of Paula realising that her baby is being overrun, overrun by rats the size of small dogs. And Shane's vanishing into the midst of them, fighting bravely to protect the baby, but ultimately failing. And uh, poor Paula runs out into the street with uh, the remains of her baby in her arms. It's it's really quite upsetting.
1: Was there a bit of you there that thought when she went next door for a, a cup of sugar or a tea bag or whatever, yeah. she should have took the baby with her?
0: Yeah, possibly. I th- I think that there is there is always that argument. I mean, it was different times. Perhaps it was um quite you know quieter. Oh, back in those days, nobody used to lock the doors. You know all that kind of nonsense about Rosie kind of idea of the past, but. Yeah, going next door to... Number one, going next door to borrow a cup of sugar is so 60s or 70s, isn't it? I don't it? think it
1: was sugar, but... Yeah, yeah. But that, that
0: type of thing. But yeah, yeah perhaps was. leaving the baby alone in the kitchen with Shane the dog. But in Paula's defence, rats the size of dachshunds coming out of the cellar to, to eat a baby...
1: Not expected. Probably
0: not what you expect to happen. No. So yeah, poor, poor Karen. And chapter four. So Harris takes Keo to the hospital... And it's quite a nice little bit this because there's obviously got a bond yes. between Harris, the pervert teacher, <laughs> and uh, and young Keogh. and in, and albeit reluctantly, it actually allowed me to kind of just warm towards Harris a little bit. And uh, Keogh's telling him about the rats at the canal.
1: But and also it's interesting because he grew up, Harris grew up in this area, so he's got a lot of local knowledge. Yeah. Which I think is. Very good as part
0: of the story as well. Yeah, and he, and he, he feels like he's, he's got a real bond with this part of London, yes. isn't it? It's set in Stepney, I think, isn't it? So he's, he's, he's bonding with this kid, and they're talking about this rat, and he's starting to think, wow, how, how 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 do you get rats this big, you know? But just then, all eyes in the casualty department turned as a hysterical woman, clutching a bloody bundle, was half carried in by two ambulance men. A nurse dashed forward and tried to take the small shape from her, but she held onto it fiercely, her sobs racking her whole body. It was then that Harris realised what she was holding. It was a baby. But by the look of its blood-soaked body, it couldn't possibly still be alive. Oh, the poor little sod, thought Harris. A doctor came along and tried to soothe the distraught woman, speaking quietly and calmly, making no attempts to relieve her of her burden. Then, with his arm around her and the nurse on the other side, he led her away. Everyone in the room appeared shaken by the drama. There was silence for a few seconds, then everybody began to talk at once, although their voices were hushed. Harris turned to Keogh, whose face was drained of blood and his knees trembled visibly. Not as tough as you pretend, thought Harris. But he said nothing to the boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Harris, I was i was just starting to warm to you a little bit, but you massive prick. He's a, a, a child.
1: Yeah, a 13-year-old boy. Yeah,
0: he's a child and he just saw a woman come in with the tattered body remains of a baby. Yeah, and a, he's, uh, he's, he's judging Keogh.
1: <laughs> so he's not so, Sense. Which I think mm. a lot of people would be disturbed by. I know I would.
0: Yeah, what a an our And
1: I'm not a 12, 13 year old. Yeah. Boy or girl?
0: Yeah, well, you know, those little things aside, that's that's quite a good chapter. It starts to build a sense of the relationship he has with the boy, with the area, mm. and the kind of the sense of panic. It'd make a really good movie scene. That make a yes. really good movie scene.
1: And then he further tried to uh, warm to him by go, suggesting he go home afterwards. Yeah. Rather than go back to school.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, on to chapter five, which is our third vignette. So, we've had Henry, we've had poor little Karen and Shane the dog. And now, um, I'm not going to go into detail on this because <coughs> this is so mean-spirited and wrong-headed, this entire chapter. Yes. And it goes on for 16 pages.
1: I don't know why he was getting out with Mary Kelly. I have to be honest. No, no. It, I actually felt... After I'd read it, did she have some sort of learning disability?
0: Well, th- this is the problem, isn't it? Because what he's doing here for 16 pages, just for her to get eaten by rats at the end, Yeah. he's characterising, without her ever really getting any dialogue, just constant descriptions and um, exposition about a sexually promiscuous Catholic girl from Ireland that moves to England and falls on hard times in the big city. But it like... it. It has all the insight of a 13-year-old wanking off to read his wives in Razzle. It's oh. it's really, really quite poor. And she gets eaten by rats at the end, but not before she's been half de- beaten to death with bricks by homeless tramps.
1: Who want her good quality gin. Yeah,
0: who murder a fellow hobo for a drop of booze. Um, yeah. But that's actually not the worst thing that happens to her. No. Amazingly, no. over the course of those 16 pages. And... Um, I don't think I'm even gonna mention the worst part of those sixteen pages because it's just genuinely mean, horrendous, assistant. unjustified. It's not backed up in any way by anything he describes. And this and she the way he describes her as being sexually promiscuous is almost like uh she it, it's just a thing that happens. Um there's there's no attempts to explore it. It's just this is what she did, and then she did that, and then she shagged this and then she was obsessed with that, and then she did what she did. With a broken bottle, which we won't go into any detail because it's fucking horrible, and then she gets bricked by her fellow hobos and then they all get eaten by rats, and that goes on for sixteen pages.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, and I'm not, I'm not having to go at the priest, but it's, it's almost like you go to confession and you confess, and she was so open in this description that she got horrendously felt about, yeah, from the, from the priest, yeah. And it's like I thought confession was supposed to be a way to absolve yourself of yeah. your sins yeah whereas they really didn't take it that way
0: no and and there's there's a sense that there could have been an interesting story there about why she got into those positions but that the not it's just kind of justified away well she was Randy
1: yes yeah I, I as I say yeah. some poor, poor IQ maybe mental health problems yeah just the way that she was portrayed. But because of the sexual side, they forgot everything else about her.
0: Yeah, and it, it bothers me that that was 16 pages long. And it's the only chapter in the book that I genuinely, um, not, not dislike, actually hate that chapter. I think it's really out of order. And I'm, I'm sure he was going out to shock, but it's like shock factor with all the maturity of a schoolboy trying to shock his friends. It's you know but what makes it worse is he's actually not a bad writer and because yeah. because his writing is um so it sucks you in and if this book is a real page turner mm-hmm. and that's what it makes it all the worse for that.
1: As I say, this some of the chapters are absolutely amazing and wanna we'll yeah. come on to that. Yeah. But that one Yeah. And and this bit with our hero where you're going, Oh my god But other people are able to stand up for themselves. Yeah. Because like you say, she didn't really get any dialogue whereas other people do.
0: Yeah. Well, um female characters not getting dialogue is is not an unusual element of this book, is it?
1: No. But his, his like his partner does and we'll come on to her but well, she does.
0: Yeah. On on the subject of great chapters, chapter six isn't one <laughs> <laughs> Chapter six, oh God the horror. What? Because in chapter six we do meet Harris's other half, Jude who basically Judy. exists purely to be a soothing presence and a subject for his busy fingers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Along her thighs.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's home. He's, um, he's, he's had a rough couple of days. Everything's going a bit bit bonkers, but he's, he's, he's at home with his missus and he gets to have um, that little bit of alone time. And it says... He turned over with a groan and put his arm around the curled up figure lying next to him. Morning, Jude. The girl curled up into a tighter ball, murmuring softly. Harris ran his tongue down her naked back, making her squirm with pleasure. He put his hand between her arms and drawn-up thighs, and lightly stroked her smooth stomach. She languidly turned around to face him, stretching her arms and legs as she did so. Hello, she said as she kissed him. He drew a close, and they both stretched against each other. It's late, he said. Not that late. Oh, yes, it is. He ran his fingers along the inside of her thighs, teasing her, Didn't you have enough last night? No. She began to kiss his eyelids. Well, I did. He laughed as he whipped back the covers. Now get out in that kitchen and rattle those pots and pans. And she does. (laughs) She goes to make his breakfast.
1: But when she called him a pig, all I could think was totally... Yeah. Yeah.
0: Once his brekkie's ready, (laughs) because she dutifully goes and does it, Uh, he reads the paper all about the rat attacks, the dead tramps, and poor Paul are now seriously ill in hospital. It's all in the newspaper. And then they go to work. Harris to the East End School, and Jude to the West End, where she, in inverted commas, creates fashion. Now, those inverted commas aren't mine. They're James Herbert's inverted commas. He says she heads off to the West End to create fashion, bunny ears.
1: (laughs) Is she a fashion
0: director? Well, I don't know. It's just, just like, it's that's such a weird thing, isn't it? It's like, yeah, women and their jobs, in inverted commas. It's such a strange thing. But anyway, Harris gets to school and finds out that the hospital has called regarding Kia So he heads over to find out that has died. Poor lad. Mm. And also, so has Paula, and it appears the rat bites are fatal, killing people within 24 hours.
1: I have to say... I actually thought it was better for Paula. Mm. She'd never have forgiven herself for leaving no, baby Karen.
0: I think you're right. I think you're right.
1: I feel sorry for the traumatic uh, mechanic husband. Yeah,
0: yeah, that must be she... pretty bad, finding that out. You've lost everything, haven't you?
1: Yeah, but she wouldn't have been the same.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, as, as a protagonist for the book, I think I'd rather have had Mike the mechanic being completely uh, devastated by the death of his wife, Child and dog out to take revenge on the rats because it's it starts to get a bit weird now just how much Harris, the school teacher, starts to get pulled into all the operations and machinations
1: against the rats.
0: Because when he gets to the hospital, the man from the Ministry of Health Foskins is there, and we get introduced to Foskins. That's
1: a a really good point, yeah. Because I did think about the husband at that point, but he never, other than mentioned in the vignette,
0: he's not, yeah. so, So all of a sudden. Harris is now hobnobbing in the hospital with Foskins, the uh, the, Minister of, the Minister of Health from the government, but uh, while he's there, the hospital director explains what happens when people are bitten. And he says, The fever strikes within five or six hours, jaundice sets in immediately, the victim rapidly loses all his senses, sight goes first, the body goes into a coma, occasionally being racked by violent spasms, then the most horrible thing happens. The skin, by now completely yellow, becomes taut. It becomes thinner as it stretches over the bone structure. It turns to a fine tissue. Finally, it begins to tear. Gaping holes appear all over the body, and the poor victim dies a terribly painful death, which even our strongest drugs seem only to ease a little. Oh, fucking hell, doctor. You know, steady on. <laughs> you could have just told me the basics, but no, he gives it—he gives it everything. Both barrels. Both barrels. Yeah. So, Harris, because basically Harris is now, you know, the man to tackle the rats, yeah. teams up with some fellas from Rat Kill.
1: Albert from... Ah.
0: And, uh, Albert, so, so they go down the canal where Keogh got bit. Unfortunately, to cut a long story short, Albert, the rat guy, it all goes a bit wrong and he gets eaten by rats. <laughs> Which, again, it's, uh... He gets eaten by the bins of a council tower block along with an old lady who who bravely tried to attack him with a broom or something to save him. Yeah, yeah. to save him. And um, and there's a couple of bits where you find out that James Herbert perhaps doesn't think everybody's a complete arsehole because he refers to some builders who who, who want to uh, chase the rats yeah. and, and um, into a like a building site, but Harris puts them off because he knows what'll happen if they get bit.
1: Yeah.
0: So yeah. Again, this, this isn't like a classic vignette but once again he introduces an interesting character but kills him off very very, very quickly, quickly. Yeah. Yeah. and, we, and we, once again we're just left with Harris and our main characters in the fight against the rats now seem to be Harris and Foskins and Foskins turns up in the aftermath of all this and he says well Mr Harris what happened because of course Mr Harris the school teacher is the guy you go to, to get a, a, a sit rep on what's going on with the giant rats in London The teacher briefly told him of the events just passed. He felt full of pity for little rat-faced Ferris, whose sense of duty towards his job had led to his untimely death. It could have been Harris himself lying there if Ferris hadn't insisted on following the rats himself. We'll get a search party down there immediately, Foskins told him. They'll go through the fence and down the canal. We'll send out patrols along the canal and cordon the area off. Look, those canals run for miles. How can you possibly cordon them off? Harris was slightly irritated by Foskins' authoritatively calm voice. And in any case, how are you going to cordon off all the sewers that run beneath this city? That, Mr Harris, Foskin said coldly, is our problem. So yeah, get in your fucking place, Harris, you knobhead.
1: Well, yeah, he he is a teacher. He doesn't work for the Ministry of, Ministry of Defence.
0: Yeah, so after Foskin tells him to know his place. I did think for a second, was James Herbert a teacher at some point? And this is some kind of weird fever dream <laughs> about uh, about teachers being superheroes. But anyway... We skip straight on to chapter seven and the first line is fantastic. Harris was in no mood to go back to the school that afternoon. <laughs> 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 it's like, what what Well why would you be? Why would you be? Key other boy's dead. You've been explained to you what's going on with the rats and you've just had a, a massive confrontation with rats and you and your new mate from Rat Kill has been torn apart in front of your eyes.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's enough to make you think, Do you know what, I need some me time?
0: Yeah. Why would you? So Harris goes on to wander the streets, musing on the sociology of tower block culture and lack of safety and disaster in a tower block caused by council ambivalence and the incompetence of authority. Mm. So all of a sudden this seems very, very relevant and not dated (laughs) in any way. Quite topical.
1: Yeah, He talks more as, as well at this point, doesn't he, about his childhood and growing up?
0: Yeah, yeah he does and he's, 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 uh, he's obviously has a massive connection with this area. He says, then he had to smile at himself. He was still a student at heart, a rebel against the powers that be. As a teacher, he was directly under the control of a government body and was often exasperated by committee decisions. But he knew there were fair-minded men and women who really did care amongst the committee members, who fought hard to get the right decisions. He'd heard many stories of individuals who had fought for the government ban on free milk for kids, for instance, of men and women, including teachers, who had all but lost their jobs because of their opportunities. And it goes on like this, um, about his kind of feelings and his, his social conscience. And he gets home and he has a kip, and then he has a bit of comfort from Judy. So they decide to go away for the weekend. Judy says, Okay, and then he says, What's for dinner? And that's the end of that section. So he's this um this this kind of uh socially conscious superhero, but he's certainly not afraid of asking his missus to get the dinner on.
1: So he gets home early after a shocking day and he never thought, maybe I can get something on for Judy's tea for when she comes in.
0: Oh, God, no. No, no, that's a woman's place. By Jingo. So anyway, chapter eight, they go down to Walton to stay with Aunt Hazel. Now, Aunt Hazel is like a, a an amusing old aunt who doesn't get a single line of dialogue. At least she doesn't get eaten, I suppose, which is a bonus.
1: Well, she, she invites them, asks them what they want to eat and... Uh, Asked them if they want to come and work along to the jumble sale. Yeah.
0: well that's true. Yeah, so they go to the vicar's jumble sale. No,
1: they
0: didn't go. Didn't they? Yeah. No, they oh, went they to ex- Stratford. They going to explore Stratford and Avon, don't they? Yeah. And, uh, and get pissed off at tourists, but also have a grand old laugh. For example, when he says, Look at those women, the teacher said in amazement. They all look the same. They're all fat, and they're all wearing glasses. I don't believe it. Judy burst into laughter. He was right. They did all look alike.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, at that point I'm
0: thinking, Judy, you deserve each other. <laughs> Judy, you're a nobid as well. Yeah. But then the fan the find a, a nice little grassy slope and decide to have a shag. Well, so there's a, there's a paragraph here and I'm not going to read it, but let's just do a little summary of words. So we get moist. We get thighs again. We get panties. We get thighs again. We get wet. And we get thighs again. Because he's obsessed with thighs and touching thighs yeah. and stroking thighs and fingering thighs. And then they rested for a few minutes, their bodies relishing the warm sun, enjoying the light breeze on their nakedness. I love you, darling, Judy said. Good, because I love you. Reluctantly, they dressed and Harris lit a cigarette. Judy settled back against him and they both studied the cobalt sky. A voice broke through their tranquil thoughts. Susan! Susan! Don't go too far, Poppet. They both sat up and turned their heads towards the sound. A young girl of about seven came skipping over the brow of the hill, closely followed by a man and a woman, who wondered why the young couple sitting on the hillside had burst into laughter. Oh, (laughs) what a pair!
1: Well, one thing was, it helped with his tension, because he'd been tense after going into Stratford, with all the crowds and feeling claustrophobic.
0: Yep. So, chapter nine is another vignette. They've done their shagging, so we get a break from Harris and Jude for a while. We get uh, another vignette on the underground about Dave Moody. What's the score with Dave?
1: Well, Dave has got a girlfriend, and his friends describe her as a pret teaser. Oh, dear. Uh, apparently, she when, she when he goes to see her, she's increased the number of days that she wants to see him, so he's not allowed to do his football and see his mates. And then he has to catch the last train, and apparently she's cold towards him. But then she becomes a bit more fruity and a bit more open, mm. just towards the end when he knows he's going to have to dash for his train. Yeah. So he's deciding whether or not he wants to finish with her when he goes down to catch his train.
0: Yeah, but this being the rats, it gets eaten by rats, not yeah. On yeah. the underground. But at this point we get introduced to uh, a a guy who works on the station called Errol. Errol Johnson. Yeah. And Errol is a black man working on the London Underground. And he escapes into a doormat private. uh, He realises that there's millions of rats crawling all over the station. On the next page, there's a little thing about the station master. And the station master choked on his tea as he heard screams coming from the stairs. He spluttered as he tried to regain his breath. Not another fight... Why was it that his station always attracted hooligans on weekends, especially Saturday nights? Underground stations always attracted trouble on Saturday nights from the yobbos and drunks, but Sundays usually weren't too bad. He hoped that daft ape, Errol, wasn't involved. Always interfering, making suggestions about how to run the place, helping drunks instead of booting them out. Where did he think he was? Charing Cross? Hmm... What, what, what to make of that exactly? Yeah, Errol, um,
1: that coloured worker. Yeah, Errol, that yeah. daft ape. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, ooh, not sure about that. But anyway, yeah. um, Errol gets eaten as well, and so does the station master.
1: No, Errol gets uh, squished by the train. Oh, Errol gets squished. Oh, poor Errol. He, he, whilst escaping the rats, he runs out onto the tracks. Mm. Just as that train came.
0: Yeah. And in chapter 10. <laughs> Does he nail women here? Let's have a look.
1: I don't feel that. I, Let's find out. I like...
0: Jenny Cooper sat reading the problem page of a women's magazine, occasionally smiling at the ridiculous situations some girls seem to get themselves into. She scoffed at some of the answers too. Flicking over the page, not really interested in the words before her, her thoughts returned to the previous Saturday night in the party she'd gone to. She was impatient to get to work to tell her friends about the fabulous boy who'd taken her home. Especially Marion, who always had hundreds of blokes and never let the other girls forget it. Jenny considered herself to be a little bit plain. Her eyes were too small and too close together. Her nose was just a fraction too long. Her legs were good though. Long, not too thin, not too fat. Her hair always looked nice, nice curls, nice soft colour. And her face was quite attractive, if she didn't smile too broadly. Anyway, this boy really fancied her, he'd told her. She'd had boyfriends, but none of them up to Marion's usual standard. She liked them, but always felt slightly ashamed of them when they'd taken her out. But this one was different. He was just as good-looking as any of Marion's. In fact, better than a lot of them. And he'd asked her out again. Tonight, pictures. She couldn't wait to show him off to her friends. She'd make Marion green. There we go. So, so there's some textbook James Herbert female characterisation. What do you make of it? It's like <laughs> something from an OK magazine, isn't it? It's like it's one of, I, I remember reading OK magazines on night shifts when there was fuck all else to read. And just reading them and, and it would be like it would just be a one page vignette about a girl who desperate for a boyfriend or something
1: yeah and a lot of that comes from obviously school friends and what people read and yeah. that hasn't changed you've got different platforms now but you still read about these stories and yeah. how it's amazing to be so painfully thin and you know any sort of weight puts people off and you know, the way she described herself. That's views probably come from her magazines yeah. and her friends. Yeah. Was, of course, sad, really. Let's
0: let's try the mature lady then. Violet, Violet Melray, sitting next to Jenny, read her historical romance. <laughs> she always became so engrossed <laughs> in romantic fiction, always knowing exactly how the heroine felt in every situation, suffering with her, experiencing her disappointments, her happiness. She sighed inwardly as the hero having lost his wealth, his wife, who had been so wicked and conniving, and his right arm in a hunting accident, now returned to the woman he really loved, the heroine, so soft, so pure, so willing to have him back in her arms and comfort him in his grief, ready to sacrifice everything for him. This man who had betrayed her trust and who now needed her so much. Violet remembered how romantic George had been in their courting days. He'd given her flowers, small gifts, little poems. How thoughtful he'd always been. But now... 16 years and three kids later, he was more inclined to pat her back than tickle her chin. He was a good man, though, but very soft. So, we've got the young girl <laughs> and the older, mature lady. Yeah.
1: Uh, what yeah. do you reckon? <laughs> I reckon James Herbert maybe doesn't know much about women. I might have a book with me on a train. It's usually a horror. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like a romantic... Oh, well,
0: I, I guess someone out there must read all those romantic novels. Well, true. It's it's Violet. She reads all of them. <laughs> yeah. So, th- anyway, then we get some... There's this other guy as well, isn't there? Um, is he Henry. Called? Henry. Yeah, another Henry.
1: The solicitor's clerk?
0: Yeah, it was a bit of a weed, but turned out to be something of a hero in yes. this situation, doesn't he? Takes Violet and... Jenny. Jenny, under his wing. And and really helps them out. And and actually this is a pretty fantastic few pages. Yes, it is. And the descriptions of the horror and the carnage on the London Underground is is really, really well done. Again, it's it's page turningly brilliant. For the most part for the most part, he doesn't really come across as a complete and utter douchebag. Um Henry. Henry and you know James Herbert oh, himself.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, Henry surprises himself how he keeps a cool head. Yeah. Because, as he points out, nobody knows how they're going to react in a stressful situation. Yeah,
0: yeah. And actually, Auntie Josie, um, oh, yeah. she read The Rats when she was in London and uh, refused to go on the Tube because she, she read this this chapter <laughs> in the hotel and she wouldn't go on the Tube the next day because she was so terrified oh, by bless. it. Oh, bless. Yeah. So just at the point where you think he's not been too much of a douchebag here, it's just really good. It reads, uh, so uh, Henry is looking at the carnage and it says, Below him was part of a nightmare, a scene from hell. He saw bloody covered limbs, torn faces, ripped bodies. A man stood almost opposite him, against the wall, stiff and straight, his eyes, eyes lifelessly staring. It seemed into his own. While three or four rats gorged themselves on his bare legs. A fat woman, completely naked, cried pitifully as she beat at two rats clinging to her ample breasts. Yeah! Oh, Jim, Jim, mate, you know, you were doing so well. You were doing so well. But just those little James Herbert-isms creeping and kind of take you out of the action.
1: You've got to say, my first question when I read that was, why is she naked? You know, biting at her chest through her clothes, why was she naked?
0: Yeah, and and the reference to ample breasts. At, At what point... When rats are eating a naked woman, do you comment that her breasts are... Well, they're ample. How big are her breasts? Oh, they're ample. Yeah. Well, there's a rat they're... hanging off each one. Yeah. But they're ample, at least.
1: They should have put, if he had to do that scene, which I totally disagree with... Yeah. ...the rats were attached to her breasts. Yeah. Who cares what size they were? She had rats attached.
0: Yeah. Fortunately, um, chapter 11, Harris gets back to school... And actually we do get a pretty good, exciting assault on Precinct thirteen style chapter with rats besieging the school. It's a very good chapter. And there's no reference to ample breasts. There's nope. no reference to fourteen year old breasts. And there's no reference to tickling thighs or probing fingers or moist things.
1: Or children being crumpet.
0: Or children being crumpet, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's pretty good. And there's no dodgy and characters in it apart from maybe the, the head teacher Grimble, who who's a bit of an arsehole. Um, oh,
1: he's the Deputy head.
0: He's the deputy head, is he? Oh,
1: have I got him muddled up?
0: Yeah, I can't remember, but he's a knobhead either way, isn't he? Um, he's, he's, he's a bit of a, a stuffed shirt and a bit the, pompous. The, yeah, the
1: headmaster makes wise decisions. The deputy head is a bit of a pompous fool because Harris basically takes charge of the whole situation.
0: Yeah. um, And some firemen and coppers turn up and we get some heroic firemen and copper action as well. Yeah. Which is pretty good. And then they uh, the pump gas into the uh, into the cellar, where, they're all tra- where they all trap, where they trap the rats. But we get a proper description of one of the rats at this point, because uh, he manages to lock one in a staff room. It says its body must have been at least two foot long, its tail another nine or ten inches. The bristly fur wasn't exactly black, but very dark brown, with lots of black speckles mottling it. Its head was larger in proportion to the ordinary rodents, and its incisors were long and pointed. Its half-lidded eyes had the lifeless gaze of the dead but its partially covered teeth seemed to wicked, grin wickedly. Even in death, the body seemed deadly, as though the disease it bore could be passed on by mere touch. So, yeah, um, two foot-long rats with foot-long tails and big teeth. It's, it's actually uh, it's, it's pretty scary. Yeah. It's pretty scary. So, fortunately, they managed to fight the rats off for the most part, and uh, after some exciting action with... Um, where the principal gets killed and various other bits and bobs, uh, they do actually manage to rescue all the children, which is nice. Yes, yeah. you know, yeah,
1: the only one who gets... Uh, obviously, there's the caretaker in the cellar, Yeah. and the headmaster got bit when he went to fight off those two rats Yeah. earlier on.
0: Yeah. So just after we get a chapter where they actually manage to save all the children, within the first paragraph of the next chapter, we find out about a baby getting dragged from its pram. and killed and eaten by rats black monday for londoners reports came in at regular intervals all day long reports of deaths and injuries the underground tragedy was the major disaster the school had, had almost been the second deaths occurred in bizarre ways the man who went to get his car out and found his garage full of the vermin the baby left in his pram in the morning sun laughing at the black creatures to be dragged out and killed the priest saying his morning devotions alone in his church the two electricians rewiring an old house for a new tenants. A pensioner, living in the top of a new council building, opening a front door to take in a milk. The dustman who took off a dustbin lid to find two creatures lurking inside. I love that. Do you reckon do you reckon they <laughs> got inside just to lay a specific <laughs> trap?
1: And put the lid on top of themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, there were miraculous escapes too. A postman delivering letters to a basement flat tent to find three sets of evil-looking eyes staring at him from a coal bunker. The rats made no attempt to attack him as he stumbled backwards at the stone steps. A gang of dockers were trapped by rats in a dockside shed. They escaped by climbing stacked crates through the skylight and across the roof, and a milkman warded off two black rats by throwing milk bottles at him. A housewife found a hall filled with creatures. She ran upstairs and jumped from a bedroom window into the street. But perhaps the most fantastic escape of all was the newspaper boy on his early morning round, who took a shortcut across debris to find himself in the midst of 30 or 40 giant rats amazingly cool for a 14 year old boy he calmly walked through them taking great care not to tread on any for no apparent reason they let him pass without harm the boy would never have been believed save for the fact it was seen from the road by two men on the way to work there was no explanation for the phenomenon no logical reason
1: and that's a question I had from it all and I was hoping for an answer Yeah. why were some people totally ignored
0: Yeah. when I read that I thought oh I wonder if they'll expand on that. Yeah, and 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 he doesn't. He doesn't. It's just just thrown in there out of interest. But actually, they could have done something with that.
1: Yeah, because I thought, is it that thing of people who've got terminal illnesses? Yeah, yeah, or something that the vermin wouldn't find nice to eat upon. Mm. (laughs) You know, Mm. I'm not eating him. He's, He's he tastes a bit ripe was well, that taste? thing in World
0: War Z, didn't there, where they suddenly realised that the zombies don't attack specific people. Yeah. And that turns out to be like a sort of a crucial plot point. But this is just That's, thrown away. Yeah. really. It's thrown away. So everybody's going mental with panic. And uh, Foskins, the uh, Under Secretary of State and the Minister for Health, in the Ministry for Health, accepts responsibility and resigns.
1: And then the Rat, rat Kill get lots of criticism and. The pest control companies yeah. are supposed to work together, but, of course, they want to outdo each other to get the...
0: To get government contracts. Yeah. Yeah. It depends, yeah.
1: depends who your friends are. Yeah.
0: So, <laughs> Harris um, does have a little meeting with uh, with Foskins, and it turns out that Foskins, actually, um, he resigned, but he's still technically in charge of the response. Mm. So, of course, Mr. Harris, being a school teacher, one of his boys was bitten by a rat, is obviously... His name is top of the list for the disaster response gang. So anyway, they've got a plan. And the plan is to implant a virus in the rats. Mm. Unfortunately, the plan entails uh, injecting the virus into puppies, sticking them in cages. Yeah,
1: not happy. <laughs> I'm with Judy on this. That's why I didn't tell her.
0: Yeah, yeah. So gruesome. So there's there's uh, some gruesome action while they are pile around the town in vans. Like the Sweeney, but <laughs> but but in uh, in like protective suits, throwing cages with infected puppies uh, to the rats, and of course just because that'd be too easy, they've got to have some action where you know people get bitten as well. So some yeah. of, some of the poor rat kill people get rat killed.
1: Yeah, but the thing is, right? So you've got the people in all this protective gear, and ha- and helmets and gloves. Yeah. And then the driver doesn't have his helmet on, so gets bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But
0: to cut a long story short, it turns out to work quite well, because in Chapter 13 we find out that the rats come out on the streets to die. And people who get bitten by rats suddenly start to survive, even though they're real, for a long period of time. And Foskins gets completely exonerated of any blame for initial mistakes and reinstated publicly to his former position, getting congrat- congratulated by the Prime Minister. So of course, in Chapter 14, to celebrate... Judy gets bath time finger bang, doesn't she? Brilliant. Because, of course, you can't have a chapter with Harris and Judy together without some kind of mention of him probing her thighs with his fingers.
1: That's right, she's in the bath while he's taking a phone call.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which Uh, obviously
1: led to sex.
0: Yep, of course. And we get a new one. So we've had wet, we've had moist, we've had thighs. Now, for the first time, we get small mound of hair. (laughs)
1: playing with her small mound of hair was it absent by absent Uh,
0: he he stroked the inside of her thigh her legs parting slightly to allow him access he pulled gently at her small mound of hair, almost preoccupied with his own (laughs) thoughts that's it,
1: almost preoccupied (laughs) he says,
0: I might just have a look around the area see how things are being cleaned up might even do a bit of painting oh brilliant Oh. Just, he just can't, can't help himself there is one line in the sequel, Lair and I was when I was reading this I realised that it didn't pop up in this it's in Lair, and there's one of those vignettes early on in Lair with a couple camping in Epping Forest and for the first time in a James Herbert book you get a reference to moist triangle oh really? or, or, or hair moist triangle it's stuck, it stuck in my brain because it's such a bizarre fucking description it's always stuck yeah. in my brain But yeah. But yeah, so
1: he, well, before they get at it, obviously he says, we've been invited to a party. Yeah. To give congratulations to Foskins.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, while they're there, they get news
1: of another attack.
0: In North London this time, not in the East End. So, chapter 15, vignette time again, but we get double vignettes in chapter 15. We get the cinema vignette where Stephen Abbott is sitting in the darkened cinema. Trying to touch up his bird.
1: Trying to get some, <laughs> because he's actually got himself a good-looking bird this time. Oh, yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Seriously, James Herbert. Yeah.
0: She was very fussy, and she deserved to be, with her looks. I know. Best-looking bird in the club.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: It's absolutely amazing. His arm reached around her shoulders, and she snuggled against him. One of her hands rested on his thigh. What is it about <laughs> fucking thighs? The area under her hand became the centre of his feelings, until the weight cost starings elsewhere. Etc., etc., etcetera. sticks his hand in his shirt, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, giddy at the feel of warm flesh of her tummy. Oh. Yeah. And then then there's a line, he cupped her breast tremblingly. <laughs> yeah, fucking hell, man. Anyway, they all get eaten by rats. Yeah,
1: she screamed, she got bit. Suddenly, mass of rats. Yeah. And as the. F- looked up at the film, didn't he? Yeah. He tried to escape, but there was no escape. Yeah. And he looked up at the screen and said, The end. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> when you take out the tremblingly cupping breasts through blouses yeah. stuff. Again, it's another good description of pandemonium. Oh, it's and a, horror. Yeah. And, and and terrible death and destruction.
1: Once you get through but once you get through that first bit of chapter where it's about him copping off of his girlfriend, it's a really good chapter.
0: Yeah, there's 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 some really good little bit little descriptions as well, like there's a point where Stephen is is fighting with a rat, and then and a, a guy helps him out and, and pulls it off. He sees his plight bravely. He says, Man in front saw his plight and bravely grabbed at the rat clinging to his leg and pulled. Abruptly, the creature released its grip and turned on the man biting into his face. He went down screaming in agony. And there's another bit where it says, A group of teenage boys had formed a circle back to back and were slowly making their way up the aisle, kicking out at the vermin with their heavy boots. Unfortunately, they could get no further than the thronging mass of people around the exit. It's really cinematic. Yes, it's fast paced. It's yeah. action packed. It would make a, again. It would make a great scene.
1: Well, yeah, because you think they would escape if it weren't for the fact that all of the other people were blocking the exit. Yeah. Very good.
0: Yeah, and then we get vignette two in this chapter, which is the zoo. George. Oh, George oh. at the zoo. Poor George. George Fox.
1: George and his animals.
0: Loves the animals in his care, and when the other zookeepers are trying to get out, he he, he stares back to to release the animals and, and the big cats and everything else. So so they've got a fighting chance. And then, bugger me, the cheetah, kills him.
1: <laughs> well, he's another one, I believe, that the rats ignore.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: They go for the animals. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> this fucking cheetah, what a knobhead this cheetah is. So he's, he's let out the he's let out the lions, and the lions have sprung out, and he's let out the tiger, the leopard, the panther, the puma, the jaguar, the cougar, yep. and they're all having a massive pitch battle with these rats. Yep. Um, this would be awful in a film, because it would all be CG hyper-terrible. Yeah. But it, it reads great, and it says, Only the cheetah remained in its cage. Come on now, Sarah, you must come out, pleaded George. But the cautious animal merely snarled from the back of the cage, bearing its teeth, raising a claw. Please, Sarah, there's a good girl. There's nothing to be afraid of. You've got to come out. In desperation, he began to scramble into the cage. Come on, girl. It's only old George. I've come to help you. He slowly advanced on the cheetah, hand outstretched, talking soothingly all the time. The animal crouched away, snarling more ferociously. It's me, Sarah. George. Only old George. The cat sprang at the old keeper and within seconds reduced him to a bloodied carcass, <laughs> dragging the dead body around its cage in triumph. Then it sprang from the cage and streaked towards the fight between cat and rodent, but instead of attacking the rodents, it leapt on the back of the panther, oh no. sinking its teeth into its shoulder. Bloody
1: Still cheaters. the burden
0: poured in, and the battle between might and multitude continued to its bitter end. Well, even the cheetah is a complete knobhead. The
1: thing is that you should have left cheetah when it started snarling at you, George. Yeah. You should have left it. Yeah, you can't save everybody.
0: But you know, even George, you know, couldn't expect James Herbert to write the cheater to be a massive <laughs> cockhead, could he? <laughs> you know, to be fair. Oh. So anyway, the poor zoo animals—they all go down fighting. Yeah. And uh, and now London is locked down, and Harris, look, because he's Harris, has got a fancy man's security pass, and he's off to Whitehall, and he's he, he, he manages to get Jude a Judah job as well. In so admin.
1: Two or two maps. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Don't want it to be a full object.
0: Yeah. So don't don't worry. Uh, don't worry about your fashion job. I'll get you a job as a secretary in the emergency response section. <laughs> and they've got this. Uh, they've got this plan. Um, once again, but this time it's to use gas. And Judy said, "Will it work, darling?" Judy interrupted his thoughts. He turned towards her, smiling tightly, unable to hide his unease. It's got to, hasn't it? He said. Stopping to allow army army lorry to pull out from a row of other brown vehicles, all filled with soldiers wearing protective suits and each carrying gas masks balanced on the knees, he reached out and squeezed her hand. As part of the newly organised action committee, he had been able to use some influence to keep Judy with him instead of being shipped off to the country for five days. Not that he'd wanted her to stay. The danger involved today, and possibly the next couple of days, to anyone still in the city would be great. The whole operation was unpredictable to a certain extent, but she'd insisted on staying with him and he managed to get a dispensation from the ban, having her conscripted into the large admin organisation necessary for Operation Oh, So, Harris, rather than getting his missus out of the fucking city, away from the rats, gets her a secretary job.
1: Well, she didn't want to leave, though. Oh, I don't want to leave you, darling.
0: Well, yeah, of course you don't want to leave him. He finger-bangs her every five fucking minutes, doesn't he? (laughs) Amazingly, he doesn't do it now, while they're in the car at Whitehall. (laughs) Which is absolutely incredible.
1: And Foskins obviously with with this extra rat attack was was sacked again, yeah. wasn't he?
0: Yeah. So it also turns out it turns out, surprisingly. The second surprise, the first is that he don't finger in the car. The second is that Whitehall are gonna implement his plan. Which bizarrely is something to do with arm wavy sonic wave something or other than gas gas the rats in park.
1: Which you you kinda of think if he was a science teacher, oh, maybe. Yeah. He's an art teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing against yeah. art teachers.
0: So if, if it comes completely out the blue, doesn't it? Harris is like, right, why don't we use some Sonic Bonnet bullshit to get them all in parks, then gas them? And, and, hey, everybody at Whitehall, including the army, listen to the art teacher. He's got a brilliant idea. A little bit out the blue, that one.
1: Well, you never heard of him talking about any hobbies in it or anything. Yeah. His only hobby seems to be Judy's thighs. Yeah.
0: They start to implement the plan anyway. London's been evacuated. There's barricades everywhere. The army is setting up these sonic sound wave machines. And uh, it says, At first, it looked as though the city would never be ready for the oncoming battle, but miraculously, and mostly due to the cooperation caused by fear of the public, on the fifth day, the stage was almost set. Last-minute conferences were held, revisions to existing plans made final instructions to helicopter crews and the army given, and then the long vigil through the empty night, waiting for the dawn and the deciding climax it would bring. Harris and Judy laid awake most of the night, making love.
1: Oh, really?
0: Uh, Uh. Naturally. I I suppose that's the one time you can maybe forgive him, because he's about to face possible death, and it doesn't describe thighs or small mounds or moistness. It just says making love. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give him a break on that one. And of course, something we've got is foskin got sacked again, didn't he? So Foskins got sacked again, but after being sacked, it turns out he's been doing some homework and randomly did some research. And again, this comes out of the blue as like sort of a deus ex machina for the end. He found out that some geezer, a professor, spent three years doing some top work about animal mutations and came back to Blighty to live in a lockkeeper's cottage by a canal That Harris used to play near as a kid. What a coincidence.
1: Yeah, Professor William Bartlett Schiller.
0: Yeah. That's the name of that. So, this, of course, is the cottage from the very beginning, 165 odd pages ago. Uh, And we found out, and he finds out that Foskins, despite warnings to the contrary, has uh, has gone to the cottage despite the magic sonic bonnet bullshit machines being activated. So he decides, heroically, to head across town.
1: Because they had mentioned earlier on, hadn't they, about these rats were similar to something you'd find in the tropics. Yeah. So maybe they should look to see if somebody had brought some over. Yeah. But then obviously they'd come up with their second idea of putting a deadly virus into poor puppies. Yeah. So because it had killed over 2,000 rats, they thought it had dealt with it all. Yeah. So forgot about all about the tropics.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, fair point. I'll forgive Foskins suddenly coming up with that then. That's good.
1: He wanted to make amends though, didn't he?
0: He does, yeah. He wants to make amends.
1: I'll say face.
0: Yeah. So Harris makes his way to this cottage that he knows about. There's a little bit of drama on the way with rats in the street and on bonnets and stuff like that. bit exciting.
1: Yeah, well, obviously with the sound waves, you see it's, a, again, a really good description of this wave of all these rats, bar some of the really bigger ones. Yeah. Well, the one that was attacking him that didn't seem as affected by the... Mm. Yeah, we
0: found out there's like sort of bigger, like almost boss rats. Yeah, and uh, he he gets to the to the house, um, where the kitchen overlooks the canal, and there's actually a really really nice passage in here, that's quite um lurky, but I really really like it because it re- it reminds me of those like racket feelings you have as a kid, of things that are off limits. And it says um, so he gets in. And it says. The smell that assailed his nostrils was even stronger than before, and he quickly replaced his helmet in the hope that it would act as a mask. The kitchen still had crockery in its sink, now dusty with time, cobwebs hung across the windows, and from the corners of the small room, ashes still lined the fireplace, uncleared from its last fire. Whoever had lived here had left in a hurry. Harris opened a door and went into a dark hall, switching on his torch, although he was still able to see enough without it. He stopped outside a door that, as a child, when the lockkeeper had let him and his friends visit, he'd never been allowed to enter. Not that there had been any mystery on the other side, but because the lockkeeper had said it was a private room, a room used for rest and reading the Sunday papers. He didn't understand why, but the unknown room presented him with deep apprehension, fear looming up inside his very soul. Nervously, he turned the handle and pushed against the door, slowly at first, but then swiftly and firmly, letting go so that it crashed against the wall. I really love that second paragraph. I think it's brilliant because it really kind of does conjure up those, those images that you have. And I can remember stuff like that. It's like there were rooms, for example, in Nana and Pop's house that I'd never been in. Yeah. That I'd never been in. And Pop's had... Pop, because he was like a, a radio and electronics guy. Um, I mean, he, was a, he worked in Royal Engineers at Bomb Disposal during the war, then worked for a company called Ace Electric. And he was into radios and things like that and long wave radio. And he had this room... At the back of the house upstairs, that I never ever went in in my entire life. Really? Yeah, and it was just like the idea of what was in that room was so. Um, we knew not to go in there because that was Pops' room. And it was even when, as a teenager, we lived, we'd moved out into a village. And when I was of an age when I'd started going boozing and getting pissed and going to pub and going to nightclubs or getting up to no good, I would stay at their house. And I stayed in a bedroom upstairs, which, because they had a a downstairs bathroom, before that I'd never been upstairs in their house, ever. Mm -hmm. So it felt like, wow, I'm now 16 and I've actually been upstairs in Nana and Pops' house. But even then, only to this bedroom and the bathroom next door, the room to his radio room was always closed. So there's always that sense when you're a kid and it carries with you into adulthood. It's like um, certain things are off limits. So that's why... I really love that paragraph because it describes that sense of apprehension. And even though I didn't think there was anything sinister about it, it was just somewhere he was forbidden to be as a kid. Yeah. And it adds to his anxiety and apprehension. I think it's brilliant. It's a fantastic chapter, a fantastic paragraph. And it really indicates, actually, when he's, when he's on form, James Herbert is a really good writer. And this yeah. is like an early taste of what you would get, I think, in his later books, which were really more, they were less overly violent and sexualized yeah. Stuff like Haunted and The Magic Cottage and things like that. All really, really good stuff. But anyway, turns out Foskins had quite a heroic demise hacking rats up with an ax before being eaten <laughs> because ultimately everybody who isn't Harris or Jude gets eaten. Pretty cool for a Tory minister. I reckon Gove would do the same. I could see Gove in a kitchen fighting giant rats with an axe, what do you think?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, no maybe So not really. yeah, it was yeah. The fact that how he describes him it's even though most of his face was missing he did recognise the minister. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's sad. He tried. Yeah, poor Foskins. I can't see a lot of ministers going down with a with a axe, fighting at these rats.
0: Yeah. So it turns out he's uh, he's been eaten by a big, like, Primarch rat's guard to what he finds in the corner, which is a weird, mutated, two-headed, strange, obese, pale, pasty, um, kind of partly blind... Mewling. Mewling thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, after getting a bit fucked up by these primax,
1: It was a good fight with it's, the it's two, a, Yeah, two...
0: decent fight. But he, he fucks it up with an axe, and he gives it a real good going over, and he has some choice words for it as well. And it says he lunged forward, and the sightless creature tried to back away, but its gluttony and reliance on its subject creatures defeated it. It was too heavy, it was too old, it was too helpless.
1: And it had two heads. <laughs> yeah.
0: The body popped like a huge balloon filled with dark red blood. Harris became drenched in the thick, sticky fluid... But he hacked away at the pulsating flesh in a rage you'd never felt before. "'For the people who've died because of you!' he screamed at the dying creature. "'For the good! For the bastards! For the innocent! For the rats like yourself!' he hacked at the heads, killing the two brains that dominate dominated its fellow creatures. "'And for me, so I know that filth like you can always be erased!' he plunged the axe deep into the creature's sagging back in one final thrust. Then he sank to his knees and wept.
1: Because I thought, sorry, Harris, you're you're for it because he got bit and he got scratched and yeah. he got bit again. Yeah. But then there's a throwaway line that he'd been given injections. I'm yeah. Like, Did it say that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we
0: found out early on that the virus had kind of weakened the rats. You know. Only
1: the ones that probably. But eaten. only
0: the ones probably eating. Yeah. So so there is that throwaway thing. As it happens, I don't think Harris is in the sequel. Oh, right. although I can't honestly remember um, it's been such a long time but of course we now then get a little epilogue about some rats trapped in a basement um, who who uh, get by on some food that's been left behind by a shop and we find out that one of them gives birth and one of the ones it gives birth to only a few white hairs sprouted on its pink almost white body it seemed to dominate the mm-hmm. others which brought it food and kept its body warm with their own A curious lump seemed to be growing on its broad, lopsided shoulder next to its head. Patiently, they waited
1: for the people to return. And that's good. It's a very little snippet of here comes the sequel. But it also shows man's greed. The government have told everybody to leave everything open and unlocked so that when they played the sound waves, that all the rats would follow it. They shut their saying... Right, when, when everybody comes back, there'll be no food. We'll yeah. make an absolute killer.
0: We'll make a fortune. Yeah. yeah.
1: In fact, all they'll make is death.
0: All they'll make is death. <laughs> and they'll probably get eaten by rats as well. So, that's the end of the rats. How did you enjoy that, this spooky Halloween?
1: <laughs> well, early on, we had some problems with the hero. Yeah. And if you take that out, and just go with it, just go with it. I did enjoy it because, yeah. as you say, he's, he can write. And there's yeah. some really good bits, some shocking yeah. little bits even amongst it all. Yeah. But on the whole, yeah, I'm really pleased to have gone back to it.
0: Yeah. For all of its faults and for all that it's aged, particularly badly in places, it was a rollicking read. It was an easy read. It was quite exciting in places. And the fact that you know James Ebert only got better... And less kind of lascivious, um, and kind of relying on shock. It's actually it, I actually quite enjoyed it for all of its faults.
1: Yeah, and I would read more because because you'd said that he gets better. I'm not sure if I've read any more. So. Yeah.
0: Well, I think I, I we've got James Herbert books upstairs, haven't we? Because yeah. we were we stayed at a and B by Beverly Minster a few years ago, and they had I think it was Creed by James Herbert on the shelf. And I read it while we were there that weekend, and really enjoyed it. So this is the reason why I've got a copy of the Rats again. Ah. Um, and I picked up some other bits and bobs as well, and they're all upstairs. So you should you should dive into them because some of his later books are pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, I suppose what we'll have to do now is decide if we if we're going to tackle either the fog or Lair at some point. But we've got next Halloween. Absolutely, to work for.
1: this was a this was a special this away was a from a special
0: Halloween special of specialness.
1: I have my next book chosen for me so yeah, it's I'm true. ready for that. It's
0: true, um, we're doing The Warhound and the World's Pain next aren't we? Von, Beck. Yeah, Von yeah. Beck the first Von Beck novel so it's been a delightful journey into the strange mind of James Herbert and the 74 horrifying world of Stepney but thanks for playing.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure and an interesting Halloween.
0: Yeah Happy Halloween.
1: Happy Halloween
0: Thanks as ever to Phil for being a ghoulish co-host and making some genuinely terrifying spook tales. Since starting to put this together I was reminded that there was an early 80s Canadian film based on the rats, with various titles depending on the territory where it was distributed. If I can find a copy we'll give it a watch and report back in the form of a patron extra. I do think I saw it on VHS in the 80s and I remember it being pretty terrible, so I'll look forward to that. It was good fun taking a slight detour from our usual fare and we'll be doing more of that from time to time, including another appearance from Tash very soon, as we take on an occasional foray into the realm of the One Ship Book. Since our last show, we've been incredibly honoured to have picked up a couple more patrons. Joining our chaos engineers to service the engines on the good ship Don Blass, first up, is John Lays. John has been a great friend of the show, and was one of our earliest sources of encouragement right from when I set up the blog earlier last year, and is also an inspiring poet. You can find his website at JohnWLays.com Lays, spell L-E-Y-S and his collections, The Darkness of His Dreams and Whispers of a One-Eyed Raven are available as eBooks and in print. Seek them out. Also, we welcome Andrew Van Ness to the engine room. We had a quick message at her, and he said Hi Andy, thanks for making such an incredible show. I'm always impressed with the depth of consideration you and the various hosts give to these formative works of speculative fiction. Thank you for providing hours of thought-provoking entertainment. This podcast has got me back into Mococ, which has in turn prompted me to return to writing more myself. I've only discovered Mococ in the last five to six years, so my previous experience with him is limited, but I first read The Eternal Champion on my stops during a road trip from my home state of Washington to Indiana, and quickly realised I'd found my next favourite author to hunt down at Goodwill and used bookstores. Since you already did a great job with The Eternal Champion, I'd like to suggest the story Master of Chaos, which I found in my copy of Elric to rescue Tanalon, which is probably the story of his that, though brief, has stuck the most in my head. It's less sophisticated than his other works, but the imagery is evocative in the way only Moorcock's prose can be. It reminded me a lot of Lord Dunzan's short story, The Fortress Unvanquishable, save for Sacknoth, which might make for an interesting exploration outside the Moacockiverse if the mood ever takes you, and the podcast that way. I'd also like to throw my full support behind as a Lazzini Contingent. He was the first of the new wave pack I was lucky enough to stumble upon at a rotary book sale in high school and his Nine Princes is my jam. Thanks Andrew, it's lovely to have you aboard and great to know we've prodded you back towards Morcock and some more scribing. The Nine Princes in Amber calls are growing louder so it's definitely climbing up the itinerary and you've also prompted me to pull my Dunsany collection off the shelf and give that short story a look. It's now also time to thank our frankly terrifying list of ghastly chaos engineers. So Andrew, Fred, David, Jim, John, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, Malpertwee and Ben, thank you so much. And to our weirdly attired Jugaderos over at the Terminal Cafe. Clarky, Craig, Loz, Matt, Randall, Steve, Tom, Ian and Alex, eternal thanks. And of course to Master Picanti, supporter extraordinaire with his quill dipped in the eye of a gibbeted corpse. To Lord Norman, baker on the rocks, rustling up his gore-soaked treats for the clamouring pitiful wretches that stream to his domain in search of sustenance. And to the lapsed gamer, counter of excess limbs in the courts of Sufa's prime, ensuring that those scarlet supplicants don't become too greedy. And men mystical courtier in the palace of frightfully ambivalent cats. She's currently carving a pumpkin in the guise of... John Bon Jovi. <coughs> and last but not least, to Sir Neil of Burton, the Destiny Knight, the dreaded scourge of the fair Wallasey drones and thunderous wielder of Gut Wrench of the Dark. That's about it from me for now. Stay tuned for Chapter 5 of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly after the transition. And before I go, don't forget you can follow and gabblers on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The blog is at breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and we're out there on most podcatchers. If you have a favourite and we're not on it, drop me a line and I'll see what I can do about it. So, stay safe, and I'll see you soon on the Moonbeam Roads. The Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly Chapter 5 Foxes and Crows We set out from Trayback with full bellies and the knowledge that all being well by late evening we would be enjoying the hospitality and soft beds of Castle Gravenburg. The early part of the journey was dominated by argument. Lobkowitz is a freak and a dandy. He has not a militaristic bone in his pudgy body. He won't stand against Grand Britain for long if at all, Vincent spat. Militarism never did Sarbrook any good brother. Friedrich was picking herring from his gleaming white teeth with a lady's hairpin as he walked. Lobkowitz may be a lover of the alternative lifestyle, but he's no fool, and his scholars and libraries are renowned across Europe. Where there is knowledge, there is power. You know that, Vincent. (laughs) Huh. Mark my words, Friedrich. As soon as the first beast mask comes within a league of Berlin, Lobkowitz will soil himself. It is sad that his cousin is such a cripple. He had promised when we were children, he's a shrewd one. But Lobkowitz's hangers-on and sycophants always ostracised him even then. I doubt he has any influence over the court these days. Ha! cried Friedrich. You were always drawn to the smarter children, brother. You would have been a formidable scholar yourself had you chosen books over horses and steel. And you would have made a worthy commander of men had you felt able to stay away from wine and skirts. Wine I can resist, but the skirts I'm powerless against, particularly the common ones. Why do you think I cannot resist the Scandian salt fish? Both laughed raucously and gripped the other's shoulder. Morton and I shared a look. The laughter died. The road we followed had described an arc around a row of hillocks crested with dead blackened trees of a genus I did not recognise. Upon swinging northward, the trees on either side of the road fell away, and an ancient stone bridge spanned a sluggish brown river to a distance of some 300 feet or so. On the far bank stood a number of dwellings, some smoking, and we could see even at this distance carrion gathered on corpses. As one, we left the road and crouched in the undergrowth along the tree line. Friedrich unslung an ornate bow and set to string in it. Morton, who had been hanging back regularly and using his woodsman instincts to check our backs, squatted next to me. It looks like the foxes have been ahead of us all day. I do not think they are on our trail. I agreed that that was most likely. We would surely have been accosted by now had that been the case. Gravenberg is on the other side of the river, Friedrich said. We must cross. Then we cross at once, fast and low. Come, and with that, Vincent stood, and not quietly, began to run towards the bridge. Friedrich sucked in a breath, blew it out through puffed cheeks, and followed his brother. I looked at Morton. He rolled his eyes. Over there is just as well as over here, I think. Almost understanding, I nodded assent and we followed the brothers. As usual, Morton ran with poison stealth, while I wheezed behind him inwardly cursing my penchant for woodbines. Twenty paces ahead I could hear the chink and clatter of Vincent's mail. Friedrich kept pace with him, scanning ahead for trouble, a long arrow knocked, bow ready to draw in an instant. We reached the far bank without incident. The bodies had been there at least half a day, and were scattered along and across the road. All but one were local, and apparently had fallen prey to the same or a similar band that had taken Treyback's animals. The one uncommon body was a man in familiar garb to the brothers, a member of the Saarbrook City Watch. He had fallen foul of a heavy mattock. His companions had not afforded him any greater respect than their victims, and his boots and belongings had been pilfered. No effort had been made to police the bodies, and they were heavily worried by vermin and larger animals. The dwellings were those of Riverfolk, A narrow wooden jetty stood out in the shallows of the river. No boats were present, having seemingly been taken by the raiders. Morton emerged from a hovel that had not been burned. They left nothing, he said. We continued in silence. I've witnessed many such scenes in my life, yet I still struggle to fathom the baser nature of those who, when threatened from outside, turn upon the weaker of their own, not as a last resort, but as a path of least resistance. "'Vincent broke the silence. "'If we find the men that did this, they must be punished swiftly. "'But if they still wear the livery of Saarbrook and they act in this way, "'then they must be judged and punished by city law.' "'Friedrich nodded. "'I will make the gibbets myself if I must.' "'We proceeded more cautiously, and as the afternoon waned, "'a bitter chill accompanied the wind blowing off the river, "'prompting me to pull my heavy leather deck coat tighter "'and retrieve my flight cap from my pack.' Morton raised an eyebrow as I fastened the strips below my chin, but I'm sure that inwardly, he was only jealous of the fleece-lined ear-flaps. My feet were rubbed raw from the relentless trudging, so when Morton hissed and directed me towards the foliage between the road and the riverbank, I groaned and cantered towards it obediently. Once sprawling in the long grass, I looked to where he was pointing. We could all see clearly a column of smoke some way ahead. It was twisting a path upwards into the grey sky from beyond a bank of woodland, off to our left. Up ahead, the road, tracking the river, swung sharply towards the source of the smoke. Perhaps this time, Vincent said grimly to his brother, we can catch the devils in the act. Aye, I'm bored of walking, and my bodkin is restless too. Friedrich partially drew his weapon and gently caressed the blade below the hilt with a thumb. I popped a piece of Gunther's cheese in my mouth and chewed it. It tasted like a vagrant's socks. The pungency cleared my sinuses like fiery mustard and tears came unbidden to my eyes. Lest my companions think I was weeping, I thumped Morton in the shoulder and sprinted, head down for the trees. Slowing slightly, I allowed the woodsman to take the lead. A good thing too, as the diminishing light almost vanished altogether beneath the brooding canopy. Within minutes, Morton had led us over gnarled roots and under grasping diseased boughs until we spied the source of the smoke. I'd never seen a more ostentatious coach in my life, with the possible exception of His Majesty's gold-festooned Jubilee carriage. Where the Royal Coach was polished mahogany and gold, though, this was a baroque display of metalworking in pearlescent blacks, blues and greens, and obviously the product of a fevered mind. The overall impression was of an entwined marriage of machine and serpent. There was no sign of the team of horses that had pulled the thing, and a fire had been set beneath it. "'Perhaps our brigands have raised their sights a little,' I ventured. "'My terminology may not have been familiar, "'but my companions understood the meaning well enough "'and all three shook their heads. "'Something else happened here,' said Friedrich. "'No bodies,' Morton agreed, "'and no dropped weapons.' "'Vincent rubbed his stubbled chin. "'This looks to have been a well-plotted ambush, "'a brave one too, to take on a grand britann dignitary "'by the appearance of that coach, and recently too. "'The dead may have been stacked within,' I suggested.' We should check for survivors. Morton unstrapped his great axe. We must be cautious. The attackers may still be close. Gravenberg is close now, no more than 20 miles. This may be Count Baden's work, I suggested. Perhaps, the Scandian replied, but let us be on our guard. We all nodded assent, except Friedrich. He was staring back along the road from where we would have arrived had we not cut through the wood at our back. The road faded to the right, as did the river, perhaps 50 paces from where we were currently crouched. Friedrich stiffened. We're not the only ones to spot the smoke, he said. He was right. There was movement on the far bank and the flash of a heliograph signal. Damn, who are they signalling? Let us not wait to find out, Vincent suggested wisely. I loosened my scabbard and was about to run for the coach when Morton gripped my arm. Stay down, he said. I raised my fairy ear flaps and heard what was bothering him. We know who they were signalling, he spat. An ornithopter was approaching. Within half a minute the crashing sound of wings and the hissing of steam escaping from the inefficient pneumatics became deafening. The trees above us creaked and snapped in protest as the huge mechanism reared to a brief halt, not 50 feet from our position, and dropped the last few feet to the ground onto heavy-duty dampers crafted like the claws of a cruel bird of prey. The wings folded back with a groan and a high-pitched whine became audible as it diminished in intensity, finally disappearing altogether. A canopy above the vicious snouts of heavy flame cannon at the business end of the craft disgorged three men in padded flight suits, trimmed with black fleece. All wore meticulously crafted helmets fashioned in the likeness of black crows with emerald eyes. One turned to the river and waved across before unhitching a case from a stowage area below the fuselage. He unpacked an ornate black apparatus, a heliograph, and began signalling the opposite shore. His comrades walked casually towards the smouldering carriage. Complacent buggers, aren't they? I whispered. Up and at them? Vincent looked quizzically from his hiding place behind a stout ball. He chewed it over for a second. Aye. I'll take the one at the bank, I suggested bravely. I needn't have, as Morton and Vincent were already rushing the other two. I set off at a sprint, drawing my heavy boarding sabre as I ran, adrenaline supercharging my aching muscles and firing my blood, anxiety channelling into focused aggression in a heartbeat. The familiar weight of Sheffield steel balanced in exquisite union with my shifted sense of gravity, enabling me to choose the specific part of the keen blade that would impact the crow mask on the crown of the head for maximum penetration. Had the crow reacted in time, he may have deflected the blow or minimised its impact, but he didn't. His own weapon was barely drawn before he fell, his skull cleft by the savage blow, which was further strengthened by the battle cry which came unbidden to my lips. Victoria Imperatrix! I gasped and tugged my blade free of the ruined helmet, exhilarated. Friedrich was by my side firing arrows past the ornithopter. Foxes were attempting to cross the river under cover of missiles of their own. Black quarrels began to fall, biting deep into the earth around us. We fell back into cover behind the ornithopter. Over by the coach, Vincent was hacking pieces from one unfortunate crow as Morton was recovering his heavy axe blade from the spine of the other, who had evidently thought discretion the better part of valour when faced down by a charging knight and a snarling northman. The crew had been utterly unprepared for the ambush, thinking themselves safe with the foxes so close by. They had fallen quickly, but the foxes crossing the river would not be so easy a proposition. At least eight or nine were now halfway across and we had no idea whether others were crossing nearby. The black quarrels were still falling and restricting Friedrich's return fire to occasional snapshots. I shouted to Vincent and Morton that the coach must be of great importance. We could do nothing whilst it stood above the fire. The two exchanged words and came up with a plan. They each put a shoulder to the front wheels and began to heave. I snatched a glance around the housing of the gleaming ornithopter's portside cannon. The foxes were over halfway across and more were emerging from the trees on the far bank. A thought occurred to me, and I hauled myself up the handholds that afforded access to the pilot's canopy. Dropping into a padded seat, I was confronted with a baffling array of levers, crystals and cryptic measuring instruments. Inspired, I gripped the most ominous and expensive looking crystal and twisted it. A vibration ran through the entire machine and moments later the familiar whine steadily increased in pitch. As it did so, ruby studs to the left and right of the central panel illuminated. Although not intuitively positioned to any rational mind, the colour matched that of the man-portable flame lances I'd witnessed in the field at Sabrak. I had little opportunity to look for a driver's manual, so I hit both simultaneously. Nothing happened. Looking closer, I saw that retaining clips held them in place, and they were designed to be turned and not pushed. After a brief struggle, I freed the retainers and twisted them hard. Two ruby needles instantaneously connected the nose of the craft to the water 20 feet behind the farthest swimmer. Twin columns of steam erupted upwards as the water boiled and evaporated violently. The men on the far bank froze momentarily before throwing themselves bodily into the tree line, fully aware of the destructive potential of these weapons. I released the crystals and they snapped back to their original position. The men in the water were now swimming frantically, some turning back to the shore from which they had departed only a minute earlier. I quickly examined the retaining clips again and realised they must serve an additional safety function. I broke them away with my pocket knife, threw both crystals to the on position and leapt from the canopy. As I hit the dirt, the coach trundled past me down the bank and into reeds into a standstill, standing gently in the shallows of the river. I glanced back towards Martin, who shrugged nonchalantly. The coach in the event was empty save for a slim folio-sized journal of some description. I would never have seen it save for the light from the still-firing weapons behind me, which were beginning to emit a worrying shrieking and cackling. In the river, the foxes were beginning to wail. I was reminded of the scream of boiling lobsters, and wondered, momentarily, if the Dark Empire had an order of lobster-masked sailors. The thought passed quickly, and I decided it may be wise to put some distance between myself and the increasingly enrushed sounding aircraft that was now visibly vibrating and venting steam from its fuselage. The far bank was no longer visible, nor in fact were the foxes that had made it more than two-thirds of the way across the now frothing river. A heavy steam, dense as a Turkish bath, hung over the entire scene. Sensing my urgency, Friedrich began to run, as I did, and I hollered and gesticulated at Martin and Vincent, who were now simply staring goggle-eyed at the proceedings. We all ran back to the trees where we had left our packs and dashed into the woods. At our backs, the wine was gradually dampened by the trees, but a sense of pressure built steadily until I thought my inner ear must burst. The sound ceased abruptly, and seconds later my ears popped violently, the silence was rent by a tremendous cracking sound. The four of us paused to take stock of a frantic five minutes before we allowed Martin to get his bearings. We then made ourselves extremely scarce.